says, And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they received them by the church, the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now the apostles and the elders came together to consider this matter. And Father, we ask as we spend time in your word this morning as an act of worship, as we continue now in our worship of you, that we could consider accurately the word of God and what it would say to us in this portion as we continue through the book of Acts together. We pray now that your Holy Spirit who inspired and gave to us the word of God would now be our interpreter and our teacher and that we would hear his voice speaking to us what it is that you need for us to learn and want us to understand for our lives. So Lord, prepare us each accordingly. Keep our minds from distractions and just a disinterest in, Lord, what it is you would want to say. May we be attentive and expectant. And we pray your spirit would speak things personally to each of our hearts. Bless your word, we ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, I have found as well as perhaps yourself that when issues arise, it's always good on those occasions to kind of pause and ask, does this really matter you know sometimes we talk about choosing your battles and i think there's some great wisdom to that when issues arise it's always good to kind of ask does this really matter and some issues that arise really don't matter that much and so therefore it's not really worth battling over there are other issues that arise however that matter tremendously and because they matter so much it's worth doing whatever it takes to resolve the issue properly. And it's the latter that we see taking place in our text here. The church was facing a vital issue that mattered tremendously. And so therefore it needed to be worked through until a right conclusion was reached and God's will was understood regarding this matter. Let's jump in there in verse one as our text unfolds. It tells us that certain men came it says down from judea that as they come now to the church of antioch is what we're discussing here they came from the area of judea and they taught there the brethren unless you are circumcised according to the custom of moses you cannot be saved so we're looking at the church of Antioch here in this section. Paul and Barnabas just came back from their missionary journey after 18 months. They arrived back at their home church of Antioch, Syria there. They gave report of the testimony of all that God had done. They stood there with them for a long time, teaching and ministering. And then at some point, chapter 15 tells us now, men arrive there at the church of Antioch from the southern area of Israel, Judea, proclaiming ideas, notice, that contradict the gospel of grace, teaching things that actually are causing people to question their salvation experience. Notice who it is, first of all, that came with his teaching. It just tells us in verse 1, anyway, that they were certain men from Judea. Again, Judea describes the sort of the southern region of Israel, but no doubt what it's inferring to us as well is how Judea is certainly in the mind of the, the Israelite people. That's sort of the uh, area that's the epicenter of all religious life. It's where Jerusalem is located there in Judea, the capital city of Israel, and it was where the root of Judaism sprung from. It's from Judea, and more than that, Jerusalem, where you have the temple and the priesthood and the sacrificial system was operated. It's where all of the religious leaders were based out of. It's where the law of Moses was sort of uh, operating in, in a pinnacle way from the temple and the religious system. But Jerusalem, remember, also is where the, if you would, 
could use that term mother church of Christianity sprang forth because when the Holy Spirit fell in Acts chapter 2 and the first church was established, first local church, if you would, it was there in Jerusalem, predominantly Jewish people who came to realize that Jesus was the Messiah. And so they're sort of the mother church. The church was established first in Jerusalem as well. And we know from the record of the chapter as a whole, these men who come now to the church of Antioch from Judea, they come from connection to the Jerusalem church. However, we're going to see in the chapter, they were not sent out by the church in Jerusalem. These were self-appointed teachers who went out wanting to press their agenda of what they believed and spread their spiritual message because they wanted others to embrace what they were believing. So they enter the healthy, thriving church of Antioch, which is predominantly, as we've seen, mainly a Gentile church. And again, when we say Gentile, we're talking about anyone of non-Jewish heritage. So a, a predominant amount of the church are people who've come out of the Greek uh, idolatry and pagan Gentile lifestyle. They had no religious background, anything to do with Yahweh God or the law or the Old Testament. These are people who were radically converted from worshiping idols and so forth. And they come now to this church here in Antioch and they start to spread their teaching and look, if you would, again, back in verse one, what they are saying and focus on the last words, particularly of what they are saying. They come and they start to teach the brethren, the believers in this church, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be, key word, saved. You cannot be saved. Now, notice, it does not say that they were teaching unless you observe the customs of Moses and circumcision, you, you cannot really be holy or you cannot really be spiritual, deeply spiritual anyway. They're not saying you, know, you cannot be righteous or anything like that. They're saying you cannot be saved. You, you, your sins can't be forgiven. You can't escape the punishment of your sins. They're saying you cannot go to heaven unless you observe the custom of circumcision and the ways of the law of Moses. Now, we're talking about someone's eternal destiny here. I mean, you can't underestimate what's being said there and gloss over it. You are talking about the most crucial thing in humanity and they're putting a specific restriction on what's required to be able to have your sins forgiven and to be saved from your sin and go to heaven this is a crucial issue again we have to realize these believers here they're speaking to and experience salvation by the lord jesus christ when they accepted the gospel of grace which is what paul and barnabas and many were traveling around teaching in their region and again, the gospel of grace, the word gospel just means good news, but the gospel of grace teaches that people can be saved from the guilt and punishment of their sin by simply trusting and believing in the finished, completed work of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. And that by trusting in who Jesus is and what Jesus did, a person receiving that as being done for themselves and believing it can be saved that is freely undeservedly as a gift given to them by god through jesus christ their sins can be forgiven they can go to heaven they can have a right or righteous standing before god as a sinful person that it was not of works but completely a free gift of grace and this is what these believers have experienced thus far in response to their belief in Jesus and the gospel of grace. They have been saved and notice this is now being challenged. And again, understand what's being challenged here is extremely crucial because the gospel of grace, that message accords with Jesus's own declaration that he made himself. John chapter 3, probably the most famous verses that most people know where Jesus declared, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes upon him shall not perish but have everlasting life. He went on to say, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him, through Jesus, might be saved. Again, the Bible teaches that God's forgiveness, a right standing with God, access into heaven is by our trusting in Jesus 
who he is, the Son of God, the Savior, and what he did in fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law of God as a man and then suffering and dying in our place on behalf of all of humanity. That's why Romans chapter 10 says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is the gospel of grace, a freely undeserved gift that we are saved by our faith alone. And this is the message that has been shared and believed and embraced now for years and years by multitudes in the early church and many had been saved by faith alone through grace alone. And now take notice, these teachers arrive and they're introducing ideas that call all of that into question. They come from this weighty place of Judea where Jerusalem was from, the capital city of all religious life. And basically they're saying, in essence, it's okay that you want to follow Jesus. We don't have a problem with you following Jesus. But what they're saying is, but that's not going to be good enough. They're saying, unless you also are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. There's something else that needs to be done. Now, to be circumcised according to the custom of Moses, understand, that was the primary religious observance that God did require for the Jews who wanted to be in a relationship with Yahweh God according to the Old Covenant under the law of God. The ritual of circumcision was symbolic of your commitment to God in that way. So this was a crucial thing to the Jewish people or to anyone even who wanted to become a a, a convert to Judaism. This was a crucial, crucial thing that you were living according to the law of God and its righteous requirements and your circumcision represented your path to say, I'm choosing to live in submission to the righteous requirements of the law of God and submit to it spiritually. In essence, these people are saying, as I said, it's okay that you want to follow Jesus, but what they're trying to drive home to these believers there that are Gentile Christians, predominantly in Antioch, is they're saying, look, it's okay you follow Jesus, but if you want to be saved, you must first come through the doorway of Judaism You must first come through the pathway of being a Jew first and embracing Judaism and all that it represented and keeping its customs and laws, and then you can come to Jesus ultimately afterwards. But there is this process that must happen. They're trying to say you cannot come to a place of experiencing complete salvation unless you first come through the religious system of Judaism, and then from there you can move on towards Jesus. They're espousing salvation first by religious observance and then Jesus added into that. A few works, a certain ritual or two, once you do that, together with that and our system, you can then come to Jesus as well. So they're, they're, they're coming through a religious system of requirements to have to get to Christ, which is again questioning the whole reality of being saved by grace. Through faith alone, not of works in any way. And by doing this, they're saying you have to add some religious works to the work of Christ. Now, that's a major issue. You're talking about questioning the doctrine, the teaching of salvation. How someone's sins are forgiven. How someone goes to heaven. This is the most crucial spiritual issue in human existence the way a person is saved and it's challenging everything the early church was built upon everything jesus taught and everything the apostles have declared thus far in the establishment of the early church now that's why verse 2 you see the strong reaction of the leaders there in antioch paul and barnabas it says therefore when paul and barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So notice, so important is this a central doctrine of salvation to the plan of God and to the church. We read Paul and Barnabas very quickly engage these teachers very strongly. This was not a time to be passive. This was not an issue to be passive about. Notice just the terms there in verse 2. It says there was dissension. There was disputing. It says there was determination to confront this idea and fight these wrong things that were being spoken. It says there was no small dissension, meaning there was a major divide over this. Paul and Barnabas said, we do not agree with that at all. Not in the slightest bit 
they stood against it. There was no small dispute. That means there was some disagreement going on. And it wasn't a small disagreement. It was a very sharp, strong disagreement due to the error. And they were arguing for truth for the claims of the gospel and sound doctrine. And listen, when it comes to the major tenets of the faith of Christianity, there is a time to not be passive. When it comes to the fundamental doctrines of the authentic truths of Christianity, these are things that we should not be passive about. There is a time to genuinely stand for sound doctrine and especially something like this, how a person gets saved. Again, the, you know, the virgin birth of Christ, the, you know, the inspiration of the word of God. I mean, th- these things that are fundamental doctrines, the death and resurrection of Christ, his literal return. I mean, these are fundamental tenets of the Christian faith. And these are not times or things to be passive about. So after a time of disputing over how a person could be saved temporarily, it seems, they realize, look, this is crucial and this needs to be resolved. And as this contention goes on, they decide, look, for the remainder of church history, this is going to drastically affect the trajectory of where the church goes. So that's why in verse 2 there it says they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others should go up to Jerusalem where these individuals came from and go to the apostles and to the elders about this question. So they send a delegation of leaders together with these men to go up to the main church in Jerusalem where the original apostles were, those who Jesus walked with and appointed uh, to take over, if you would, his ministry so they could have a first, if you would, major church council. And that's what this is kind of going to be. The first major church council in church history discussed this question of the doctrine of salvation. So verse three says, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia, And Samaria, so they're traveling south, and on the way they're describing the conversion of the Gentiles. And they caused great joy to all the brethren. So as they're traveling south, they're probably staying along the route. Again, this is a long journey, a few hundred miles they're coming now down to Jerusalem. They're probably staying in different locations where there are churches that are established and enjoying Christian hospitality. And while they're on their way, it says they're recounting, describing the conversion of the Gentile people. So they're sharing report and testimony of how they had been preaching the gospel of grace and people had been coming to Christ and getting saved and churches had been getting established all throughout the area. They're probably giving word of some of their recent missions trip as they went around to the different locations, planning and establishing churches and hearing how the Gentile people were being converted to Christ and coming to know him. It says the response to that is there was great joy among the believers. There was something wonderful that they were hearing that God was doing and kind of like the same way when you you hear a birth announcement maybe or an engagement, unless it's my daughters you're getting engaged to, you know, everybody's excited, right? Wow, that's great news. That's fantastic. And so that's kind of the idea here. They're hearing people, people have been born again. The Gentiles are coming to the faith and, and, and they're celebrating and rejoicing over this. And again, there's something that's very wonderful about hearing the news that somebody's been converted. I mean, there's something so wonderful to hear that kind of testimony of people being converted and knowing their life has changed, their eternal destiny has been transformed. So they're celebrating this along the way. Verse 4 says, And then when they had come to Jerusalem and arrived, they were received by the church and the apostles and elders, and then they reported to them all things that God had done with them. So as Paul and Barnabas and the leaders from the Antioch church arrived there in Jerusalem, They're embraced warmly. They're enjoying fellowship. And they as well there start to give report, it says, also to uh, those who are there, Peter and James and others, telling what God's been doing among their ministry with the Gentiles, sharing what God's accomplished, all the stories and how souls had been saved and some of the miracles that God did. And so they're just sharing these stories. Again, we see this phrase like we saw last week. It says they reported all the things that God had done with them did they serve yes but were they the ones that actually caused anything to happen no god did 
There was this mutual participation where they made themselves available and useful and God did what he did through their lives as his instruments. But notice they they were telling people, look, let us tell you what God did. We want to share with you what happened. You know, I always love to sometimes listen when people, you know, share uh, stories of how the Lord's working and and ministry and so on and so forth. And and sometimes it saddens me because I don't hear a lot about what God did. I hear, we led six people to Christ. Or we and and I wonder sometimes. I mean, just do we have to kind of step back and say, "Wait a minute, I'm, look, praise the Lord." Maybe that's more than I've led to Christ, but God led six people to Christ. You just preached the gospel that He gave you, <laughs> but ultimately, if people got saved, it was God that did it, and God did it with us. God does it through us. And so here, there, I love how this heart of the early church. They gave credit to God. It was God that was doing it, and God that was working through them. All they did was honor Jesus. And the scripture and the Holy Spirit work through them as they're giving report. But as they're sharing their testimony, verse 5, as they're sharing what God did, some of the sect that says of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, it is necessary. Here comes the dispute now to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So as they're giving report and celebrating, preaching the gospel of grace, here again, they're now challenged by those who believe otherwise. And they express the summarization of what they were trying to say must be believed and embraced, contradicting the gospel of grace. Now, notice who it is that's doing it. Verse 5, it says it was a sect of the Pharisees. Now, again, remember the Pharisees, uh, probably this sect of the Pharisees who believed, The Pharisees were the religious sect of Judaism who had strict adherence to the law of Moses. They began very well as a religious sect. They wanted to preserve the law of God and the ways of of the worship of Yahweh God. And they began very well, but over time, unfortunately, in their zeal, they began to become very legalistic and rigid in their ideas. And not only did they love the word of God, but unfortunately, over time, their strong adherence adherence to the law of God led them to then add ritual and regulation. And this is what the command says. But now we're going to write in the mission and the Talmud, you know, just chapters and chapters of volumes. Well, what does that really mean? And how do you really got to do that? So then are all these added regulations and rituals and rules. And what happened over time is the Pharisees became very legalistic and loved and served their system more than they loved God and loved people. And so their religious system became the primary thing that they lived for. It seems verse 5 could be indicating, however, here that some of these Pharisees may have gotten saved. It's interesting it says it was a sect of the Pharisees who believed. So maybe these are some of the Pharisees who did put trust in Christ, but maybe they're struggling to let go of their religious system a little bit. And so they're potentially believers, but maybe misbelievers. And they're, they're kind of wrestling with letting go of everything of the law and what it represented. And that may be why we find them wrongly arguing in verse 5 here. It is necessary. It, we have You have to circumcise them and still make them keep the law of Moses, even if they want to follow Christ. Again, the problem is they're saying, look, this is necessary to follow all of the regulations of the Old Testament law. In other words, they're saying it's not enough just to follow Jesus and live by grace. They also have to keep, we also have to keep every regulation, every ritual, every requirement of Old Testament law. And look, there are those today still that would teach that it is absolutely necessary to observe everything according to Old Testament law and ritual and every regulation and want even Christians to still live under the regulatory mandates of the Old Testament law. The question becomes this, what would the church decide for church history? Because this is what needs to be resolved here. Would this be necessary to keep the entire law of Moses if you want to be saved? If you want to go to heaven, if you want to be righteous. Well, look what happens. Verse 6. It says the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. Notice it was the established church leadership 
who took responsibility in the midst of this situation to come to a conclusion on God's will for this. Verse 6 says, the apostles and the elders came together. That's a reference to those who were the spiritually mature men who had been appointed by the Holy Spirit to be leaders within the church. And notice, church decisions, we see here in the Word of God, church decisions were not determined in the early church by voting. There wasn't a ballot box. It wasn't a democracy like the American government. That's not how the church came to its decisions or its conclusions. The church was not operated by a congregational democracy. Rather, the spiritually appointed leadership functioning under the authority of the Lord assembled together, prayed, considered, came to conclusions, discerned the mind of the Lord, and then implemented what the mind of the Lord was on behalf of the people in their best interest. So whether it was doctrine, whether it was beliefs, the leadership came together and took responsibility for that. Whether it was ministry philosophy or church function or relational problems, it was the leadership that took responsibility to handle and address that. That was God's design we see from the earliest days of the church when it was in its healthy and purest form. And quite honestly, I think the biblical model presented there would be wise to continue to adhere to. It's what worked when the Lord first established the church. There's something very healthy. And just consider the Old Testament, you know, and when Moses was leading the people through the wilderness, a lot of the majority of the time, the whole congregation ended up being off track. They were complaining about this or we should do that. And when the, the, the general consensus came in, that's usually what got them in trouble. It was much better when the mind of the Lord came through those who were appointed to hear his mind and implemented that on behalf of the people. So they meet, they counsel, they're probably praying through these things, debating and discussing. But at some point they realize we have to come to a conclusive decision here. They're considering the matter. Now they must come to a conclusion. Verse 7 says, and when there had been much dispute for a while, Peter rose up and said to them, men and brethren, you know a good while ago that God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So after allowing some time for people to share their various ideas, again, being good listeners, that's how you make a good decision. You listen to people. You consider what they have to say. Peter now is one of the senior leaders in the church there in Jerusalem, rises up and shares his thoughts. And what he does here, we're going to see, is he basically recounts his personal experience of what God did through his life and his own personal ministry. And remember, Peter predominantly was the one who was ministering to the Jews, but yet God chose Peter to be the mouthpiece to first officially, if you would, bring the gospel to the Gentile people that they might be saved. We saw that back in Acts chapter 10 and 11. Remember where Peter was sent to the house of a Gentile man named Cornelius and Peter realized that God shows no partiality. He preached the gospel message of salvation through faith in Jesus to the Gentiles and God confirmed his stamp of approval by pouring out his Holy Spirit, interrupting Peter's message and saving all the Gentile people in that household that day by almost like repeating a Pentecost experience like he did with the Jews when the church was first birthed and save them just in the same manner even as he did the Jewish people earlier on. So that's why Peter verse 8 says, so God, Peter's going on, so God who knows the heart, acknowledge them by giving them the Holy Spirit, he says, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us, Jews, and them, Gentiles, purifying their hearts by faith. So Peter refers how God, who knows people's hearts condition, he says, God didn't show partiality. God didn't show any difference or distinction in how he saved Jews as compared to how he saved Gentiles. He said he did the exact same for them as he did for us. And God proved how clearly through Peter's preaching the gospel at Cornelius' house that the Gentiles would be saved the exact same way through their faith and trust in Christ by the grace of God alone. And Peter says he stamped it with the approval, he says, verse 8 there, by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. He didn't put any extra requirements on them. He said he gave them the Holy Spirit that day just like us. 
and he says they receive salvation and the spirit at the moment of their conversion because he says God knows the heart and he says as well verse 9 and God purifies hearts by faith by faith and again God knows the heart that's always important to remember and what Peter's inferring there specifically is God is fully aware what's sincerely happening inside of every human heart you can't fake with God so, I mean, we can even fake in the church. I mean, we can come here and sit and play the role and do the parts and walk through all the motions. And, you know, I, I know people sincerely. I know people, uh, you know, having pastored for, you know, 13 years in Pennsylvania before we came here. I know some people who got saved after, honestly, even being in the church years and years. I remember talking to one lady specifically. We did a an outreach event at a we had a minor league baseball stadium there in York, Pennsylvania, and they did a faith and family night, and they I got asked to to share the gospel that night afterwards in like this you know stadium after they did the baseball game. So some people from our church came or whatever, and I find out afterwards like a you know maybe a month or so later I'm talking to one of the ladies in our church who've been a part of our church for a few years, and she said, "Hey, I have to share something with you." She said, "Do you remember that baseball game? I got saved that night." And, and I was almost like offended. I was like, saved? You've been sitting for years. I mean, just, I felt really bad about my preaching. Horrible. I mean, I just was like ready to commit suicide. I was just like, are you? Because she had been a part of our church for years, week after week, week after week. We, sitting there, I'm thinking, man, that's really bad. I need to repent and pray or something. But again, God knows the heart. And I would have, I just assumed this lady was saved for years. I genuinely did. But God knows the heart. And see, we can play the part. You can grow up in a Christian home, keep letting your parent drag you to church and sit through the process and you may not even be genuinely saved. You can, you can continue to play games with everybody else, but God knows what's going on inside of your heart. God knows even the things that other people don't know about us because God sees even our thoughts and our desires and our motives and the secret things that no one else sees and we may be able to put on a front but God is genuinely aware are we just being religious or do we really have a relationship with him do we really ourselves believe these things to be true do we really ourselves believe that we are sinful and guilty do we ourselves really believe that Jesus is our savior not just the savior or a savior that he's our savior. Again, God knows the human heart and notice as well, God only purifies and cleanses the heart by faith. That's how God cleanses the heart. How does God remove my sin? How does God take away my guilt and the judgment of God and hell that I deserve when I realize I am guilty before my creator and when I've put my faith in what Jesus did for me? And when I believe it's true for myself, when God sees that faith and personal belief, he responds by cleansing the heart from sin and guilt and replacing it with the righteousness of Jesus and changing our conditions. What Romans 10 says, listen to it. It says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with a heart one believes unto righteousness but with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew or Greek. The same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But again, by faith, by what you believe. Because see, you can go through all the parts and processes and routines. You can go forward at a Billy Graham crusade. You can go forward at a church service. You can even pray a prayer, a profession of faith. But God knows whether you genuinely have faith. And it's through belief alone that God cleanses the heart. But how wonderful, because see, anybody can believe. Maybe not everybody can do religious works or give money, or, or but everybody can believe. Because that's a choice, to choose to believe to freely receive a gift that you don't have to earn or work for. Galatians 2.16 says, knowing that a man is justified, not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we who believed in Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. 
So Peter here says, look, considering what God did through my life and my ministry in going to the Gentiles, he says, proving what his will is, he says, verse 10, now, therefore, in light of that reality, why do you, he says, test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? So Peter's mindset here is why would we put a spiritual burden on these gentile people that we no longer even live under ourselves anymore peter said this this doesn't make sense again a yoke was that wooden instrument they put over the neck of the animal to pull a heavy plow and peter uses this as an analogy here he says why would we put a yoke or a burden of keeping the law on the neck of these gentile christians if we don't even anymore live under the load and weight and requirement of the law ourselves as converted Jews now, we don't carry that yoke. Why would we put that yoke on them? Now understand, the law of God was good. The Bible tells us that. And the law of God was what the Jews did live under spiritually and they were yoked to it, if you would, for a time. For a time, God had them under the yoke of the law and the law was good and holy. It kept them on track morally and spiritually. Yet because man is sinful, the problem wasn't with the law of God, which is good and holy. The problem was with mankind who's sinful. And they kept realizing we can't keep the standard. We keep failing. We keep sinning against God. And the requirements of God's holy law became like a heavy burden spiritually that the people realize we're not able to bear up under the demands of this we keep failing we're guilty but see it was the law that was intended to reveal to them like a mirror right there's the standard you're guilty and now you need a savior and the law was intended not to take away their sin it was intended to show them their sin and make them want a savior from their sin to cry out for a savior which is who jesus was Again, the law is like a mirror. A mirror can show you your condition, but it can't make you look good, right? A thermometer, you can stick it in your mouth. It tells you you have a fever, but you can't chew up the thermometer and get rid of the fever. It just indicates your condition. That's what the law does. The law serves its purpose to indicate that we are lawbreakers, but to make us realize we need someone to spare us now. And that's why Jesus came to deliver us from that, to give us salvation by grace. So Peter says, if we discovered that we can't bear up successfully under the weighty requirements of the law, why should we try and put that on others? He says it wouldn't make sense. Verse 11, he concludes saying, but we believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. So Peter clearly declares, the apostle Peter, very evident what he believes doctrinally as a good Jew regarding salvation. He says, we believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved. That that is how we would be saved. I I love this way he says it too. He says, we believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Now that's interesting. You would think Peter would reverse it. We believe that you're saved by grace and they shall be saved in the same manner as we were. But he says, we believe we'll be saved in the same manner they were. And he points really to the experience of Gentile salvation, which is quite interesting. Because a a Jew kind of went from being religious to entering into a relationship with Christ. A Gentile, they were like pagan off the hook. I mean, mean, they were the, the defiled in society, just wicked, immoral people. And they came into a relationship with Christ and they realized, but by the grace of God, we were the, we weren't even religious. We were just wicked. And Jesus saved us. And I like how Peter says, we'll be saved the same way they are, by grace. By grace alone, that's what matters the most. Well, after Peter, verse 12 says, then the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Saul as they recounted how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. So they now, as representatives of the church of Antioch, start to share their stories and testify how God authenticated their experience in ministry with his power doing miracles to show that he was behind their preaching of the gospel of grace. 
In verse 13, again, now after Paul and Barnabas, another representative of the church at Jerusalem, it says, when they became silent, then James answered. And that's the half-brother of Jesus, who we know, James, who was another leader in the Jerusalem church. And interesting, this is the same James that wrote the New Testament letter, the book of James, that very practical letter that everybody knows for what? James put this real strong emphasis on without works, your faith isn't real. And now here's James, the balance of the other side, and James is saying, we are not saved by works. I stand with Peter and Paul. We're saved by grace. We're saved by grace alone. Our works just demonstrate the fact that something real happened. So James now stands up and he kind of wraps up the conclusion. It says, James stood up saying, men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with the, these words of the prophet, this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it's written, and he quotes from Amos chapter 9. After this, I will return and build, rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does all these things." So James' reasoning, he says, look, Peter has declared his spiritual experience among the Gentiles, and he says what Peter just testified to, he says the Old Testament prophets, the word of God, agree with those things. He's saying the scripture validates and supports the spiritual experience that Peter has just described to us. He uses the Bible as his basis for his reasoning and his position. He says there, God visited the Gentiles to draw out of them a people for his name. And with this, the prophets, the Old Testament scripture, agree. And he quotes there in verse 16 and 17 from Amos chapter 9, which speaks of how the failure of the Jewish people through that God would work in a way to reach the rest of mankind, to get the rest of mankind to come and to seek the Lord and he would call them to be saved through the name of Jesus. And he says, for it is the Lord who is doing all of these things. Now, again, take notice here in these verses, it is always good to look to the word of God when you're considering matters and trying to come to conclusions and make good decisions. That's what James does here. James reaches for the word of God itself as the foundational source in considering the matter and coming to a decision. He says, look, what does the scripture say about this whole thing we're talking about here in this council? The scripture agrees with this. So if this is what the scripture says, we should probably go with what the scripture says. And this is James' basis in his decision. Look, the word of God reveals the will of God. And so good decisions should be based in the word of God. The word of God reveals the will of God, so good decisions should always have a basis in the scripture. You should be able to find a biblical basis for why you're deciding that or why you believe what you believe. Not just, well, I mean, this is what my experience was or this is what everybody else in the church is doing. No, no. What does the Bible say? That's safe. That's good for foundation. He says, verse 18, known to God from eternity, Peter, or James says, are all of his works. In other words, he says, God has known what he's going to do for all of eternity, and just because we're not grasping it doesn't mean that we shouldn't trust God that he knows what he's doing. Therefore, he says, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from things strangled and from blood. So, here, James, very wisely, wants to find a gracious balance to maintain unity between Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians who would now be together in the church. So he declares, look, we shouldn't trouble the Gentiles who are turning to God by trying to throw them back under the law of God that we were once under. He says that wouldn't be good or wise and force them to do that. It's not God's heart. But he says we should encourage the Gentiles to be sensitive to their Jewish Christian brethren. And he says, why don't we recommend instead, because the law of Moses has been proclaimed in their synagogues year after year, generation after generation. And he says, so the Jews are very, very connected to the law. So he says, maybe what we should do is propose a few things that if they were to observe them would be loving and respectful to their Jewish 
Christian brothers and sisters so that they don't stumble them and there's unity. And again, these things wouldn't be healthy spiritually anyway, and they would be major triggers to offend the new Jewish believers in Christ. So he says, look, let's tell them to abstain from involvement with foods polluted by idols. Don't touch anything that's been involved in idol sacrifice in the pagan temples. Again, to the Jew, idolatry was a very sensitive subject. They say, let's tell them, keep yourself morally pure. Remain free from indulging in sexual immorality. Now, for a Gentile, they lived very promiscuous lifestyles. They had temple prostitutes, and their worship of idols and pagan gods was many times very sexual in its activities, and fornication was involved. So he said, look, let's tell them refrain from those things because the Jews who have a very moral conservative base... They'll know that they are genuine if they turn away from those things that the rest of the world is doing. So it's not just not only not good to indulge in the sexual activity of, of sinful living, but they said, look, that will really emphasize to the Jews if they see moral purity, hey, these people are sincere because that's a radical life change for them to turn away from those things. And then, of course, the last thing they say, let's tell them to refrain from involvement with blood, a major sticking point again with the Jews because they believe blood, God had told them, was given for the atonement of sin. So they say, look, let's tell them to be sensitive in regards to those things as well. Verse 22, here's the letter they now send. It says, then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of the company of Antioch, Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, named Barsabas and Silas, leading men among the brethren. And they wrote this letter as the conclusion to now send back to the church in Antioch to the apostles or excuse me the apostles elders and brethren to the brethren there who are the Gentiles in Antioch Syria and Cilicia greetings since we have heard they say verse 24 that some who went out from us have troubled you with words unsettling your souls saying you must be circumcised and keep the law to whom we gave no such commandment in other words they say look two things one these people did not come from us. We did not send them out. They went out. We are not endorsing their doctrine. And they're saying, look, we do not believe what they are telling you, that you have to keep the law of Moses. They say, we don't agree with that. So that was clear. They say, it seemed good to us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men with you, our beloved Paul and Barnabas, men who risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things to you by word of mouth, for it seemed good to us in the Holy Spirit to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. They recount the three stipulations to keep unity among the Jews and the Gentiles. And they say, if you keep yourselves from these things, notice you will do well, farewell. So as they propose their simple solution here look we believe that you are saved by grace alone through faith alone you do not have to keep the law of moses we did not send these people we want to settle your souls from the things that they said to you we're just asking you would you do these few things to be sensitive to your jewish brothers and sisters that's all we ask that would be well if you do that but take notice verse 28 i love how they come to their conclusion that they knew this was the resolution of the Lord and their decision. It says, verse 28, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and us that this was the will of the Lord. It's describing a mutual peace from the Holy Spirit that they experienced in their hearts. They're saying, this is how we knew this was the will of God. We had a peace from the Holy Spirit. It seemed good to the Spirit of God who was dwelling within our hearts and among us that this was a peaceful resolution. The idea is they didn't have reservations about this decision. There was no sense of you know, being uneasy about it. They felt good and peaceful from the Spirit. There was a mutual peace, and this is how they knew it was God's will. And let me just say, that is a great way to make decisions, not only in your personal life, but when you work together with other people. As a married couple, if you're praying through something together and trying to decide what God's will is, wait until you both have a mutual peace from the Holy Spirit about a decision. When you both have a mutual peace about it from the Spirit, that's probably a good indication as of the Lord. If one of you has got a reservation, 
I would say perhaps you ought to hit the pause button and just wait because maybe that uneasiness is the Holy Spirit not giving somebody peace about something. So whether you're working with people, doing ministry, a great way to make a collective decision. Well, verse 30 and 31 tells us in conclusion, when they were sent out, they came to Antioch, gathered the multitude together and delivered the letter and read it to them. And when they read it, notice, they rejoiced, I bet they did, over its encouragement. Imagine, they were waiting to hear, are we saved or not? And how long they had to wait? I mean, a few weeks maybe? I don't know. Are we saved or not? Are we going to have to keep all the law of Moses now just to be right with God? And this major dilemma arose. And what happened? A major dilemma arose. They consulted the word of God. They listened to the spirit of God. And they came to the will of God. James puts forth this wisdom that instantly brings encouragement and resolution to a major, major issue. I believe James there was operating in the gift the spiritual gift of the word of wisdom. Because the word of wisdom is a spiritual gift that is necessary in the body of Christ when a major dilemma or situation arises and there's dispute and, and differences of opinion. A word of wisdom is when the spirit of God through the word of God gives someone divine wisdom to say, look, here's what I think the resolution should be. And everybody goes, that's great. <laughs> that, yeah, we're, we're all encouraged about that. And the word of wisdom just comes forth in this very beautiful way. You know, this chapter reminds us as Christians, we should not be controversial people, but there are times when it's not right to be passive if something really matters. And it also reminds us this, a dilemma arose that could have been very damaging. I mean, it could have been catastrophic in its damage and the impact, but yet, though it could have been a very damaging thing and ruined something good, in the end, what did God do? He turned it around for something good. And once for all, the, the issue is settled by grace alone. So something could have went really bad or could have been very bad, God turned it around for something good. Kind of reminds me of a verse, Romans eight twenty eight. God works all things together for the good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Look, maybe there has been some things that have taken place that could really seem very damaging, but in the end, God has this amazing way to turn what could have been very damaging and make it be something very good and very beneficial if you love him and trust him. Let's stand together.